Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. Those of you who are regular viewers or listeners to this podcast will know that last week I talked a little bit about what we wear when we come to church to worship God. If you've not listened to that and if you think that would be helpful to you, I encourage you to go back and uh, have a, a watch of that or listen to it. This week I want to continue on a similar theme by talking about more broadly how we behave in church, what kind of attitude we bring to us, how we comport ourselves and so on. Uh, for those of us with families, um, how we train our children, how we uh, anticipate bringing those uh, our, our little ones into the experience of worship uh, in the assembly of the gathered community of the people of God worshipping him. Uh, I'm conscious of what I have to say this time around. It may be uh, somewhat challenging to one or two people, um, especially people uh, with younger children or people who are used to a different style of worship than what we're uh, seeking to embody here at All Saints. Um, in a sense, that's inevitable. Um, but we're all here, aren't we, because we want to uh, be drawn into a particular kind of Christian culture. And particularly, I mean, isn't this the most important aspect of our life together as a community we want to approach the living God in worship in a particular way and perhaps as a helpful place to start I want to think first about what it is that we do when we worship God just think of some of the biblical images that characterize a full-orbed description of what it is when we gather together formally as the people of God to worship him Perhaps most obviously, we are gathering to the throne room of the thrice holy triune God to worship him in his sanctuary. We are lifted up by faith from the physical sanctuary where we're located here to the true sanctuary in heaven where we stand or sit or kneel at the right hand of the one who's blazing perfection cannot be approached nor seen by human eye we are if the high priests of israel were a little nervous or awestruck at the once yearly privilege of entering into the most holy place on the great day of atonement how much more should we approach the holiness of the living god with reverence and awe just think of that first image the holiness of God whom we approach in his sanctuary. But there are other images in scripture, aren't there, about what we're doing when we worship God. We're coming to our divine teacher and think of the occasions in scripture, for example, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people uh, were hearing the word of God, the law of God, for the first time in years or decades, and the reverence with which they stood to attention, so to speak, as they were listening with rapt attention to every word that proceeded from the mouth of the living God, the inscripturated words that their Levites read and explained to them. They had days-long sermons, and they listened with bated breath and uh, hearts fixed on what they were hearing. Worship is also a courtroom. We're standing before our heavenly judge, or kneeling before our heavenly judge confessing our sins to him and then we stand to hear with joy and relief in our hearts that we are forgiven of our sins not guilty it's a courtroom uh, it's also a meal table it's the place where we gather uh, at the table of the lord to feast upon him 
It's a solemn and joyful occasion for that reason. It's one uh, where uh, just as you're uh, having family meals at various points during the week, various special occasions, when the, the great divine host welcomes us into his presence, it is he who should have our attention and the focus of our hearts and minds. And then in addition to that, worship is liturgical warfare. Um, I was thinking the other day about um, Psalm 149 and the, the parallel there between the praises that the Lord's people bring to him and the action that the Lord does in going out to fight for his people. And so we're an army assembled for battle. We're standing to attention in that sense, bringing to the living God our praises and our prayers and our responses to him and hearing his word as those who are, so to speak, standing not quite in the front lines because Jesus is in the front line, but we are right there in him by faith in him, ready to fight his battles, not quite, ready to call upon him to fight for us and indeed through us and in us against the sin that dwells within us and to equip us to stand with faithfulness in him against the ungodliness of the world around us. So just think of all those images that scripture presents us with, of what worship is, and consider the attitude that we should have, the behavior that we should instantiate, the demeanor and our posture emotionally and physically, we're not Gnostics, our bodies matter. When we enter that place for that hour and a half or hour and 40 minutes on a Sunday to worship the living God. That sets something of a biblical framework for our understanding of this subject. And it's important to have that in mind up front because there are a couple of features of our world which I think we've probably been too strongly affected by. And if I tell you what they are, you'll be dismayed at the thought that we could possibly be shaped by them. Uh, but nonetheless, I think you'll probably agree that there's a temptation there for all of us. The first I have in mind is that we are infected with the spirit of casualness that pervades our age. It's very interesting, and just going back somewhat to last week's podcast about clothing, uh, this is one of the reasons why I talked about that, because there has been a dramatic move in a more casual direction in how people dress, for example, in the workplace. Uh, as I mentioned last week, it used to be unthinkable for a man to walk down a street in New York without wearing a hat. And nowadays, we have kind of dressed down Fridays, even in offices of um, uh, firms that once used to insist on a three-piece suit and uh, briefcases all the same shape and color and so on and so forth. Uh, the casualness infects every aspect of what we do. Now, I'm not um, here to campaign against casualness in the workplace. Perhaps there are some workplaces where you get the right kind of spirit of creativity from having a sort of more relaxed environment. Um, maybe there are times in some workplaces, even where sometimes, you know, the sales guy or the senior executives do need to be dressed smartly sometimes. But maybe there are other times when, you know, you're on a company retreat or it is a kind of all hands day and you're trying to get some ideas together or you're trying to be creative where you just want to relax a little bit more. I'm not here to tell you that those things are wrong. I am here to tell you that that's not what we're doing when we gather to worship God on the Lord's Day. When we gather to worship God on the Lord's Day, we are doing something very different. And 
the casualness that's not just about clothing, it's about other aspects of how we comport ourselves, I think is something we've learned from the world. And it's a danger that we bring it into places it doesn't belong, like in the house of God in worship. Think of it a slightly different way. Think of the image of the military aspect of worship. We are the army of God, the hosts of God, gathered before the Lord of hosts. That's the um, the meaning of that term in the Bible, by the way, where you see the word God of hosts. The, the word hosts means armies. The Lord is the God of his armies, and we are his army. So we gather for parade to be inspected and given our marching orders. That's what sermons and Bible readings are, that they're God giving us his marching orders for us to apply to ourselves and obey during the rest of the week. So wouldn't it be outrageous if we were to come to that with a kind of chilled out and just kind of chat show, um, uh, jazz lounge view of what we're doing when we gather to worship? This, for what it's worth, is one of the things that does make me sad about the broader uh, evangelical world in, in many aspects of the broader evangelical world in churches, even in reformed churches where I and many of you have lots of friends, there's a great deal to be enthusiastic about and to thank God for. There are great preachers. There's um, real zeal and love for the Lord. There's there's love for the word of God and, and real holiness there. But in many places, isn't it the case that many of our friends, what makes us somewhat sad about the experience of the Christian life that sometimes they have in the churches they're in, is just a more casual kind of chilled out affair that doesn't take seriously the fact that we're in a war against an ungodly culture. And so what we've gone and done is go and bring some aspects of that culture into our worship here. I'll give you one example. I've got in front of me, um, my. if you're listening on uh, the audio version of this podcast, you can't see my two and a half pint um, tea mug that I bring to work with me every <laughs> every morning. Um, this is something which we all do habitually, don't we? You don't don't leave the car practically without a, a thermos flask, a metal lidded cup full of coffee or something in the morning. And that's fine, right, isn't it? I mean, we're just kind of driving down the road, and as long as you're not distracted, or you're in the workplace or at your desk, this kind of gets me through to about 11.30 most mornings. Um, and that's just perfectly fine. But I want to suggest that that's not fine in worship. It's not because coffee is bad or lidded metal thermos insulated mugs are bad. But because what that evinces is a kind of casual relaxedness, which, though not sinful everywhere else, would be wrong if you were doing it on military parade. Or if you were taking it with you into the most holy place as the great high priest of the temple of the living God. Just two of the images that I mentioned earlier about our worship. I think probably what's happened is over time, the precise point at which we ought to be fighting the battle against the world most acutely and with greatest clarity, our worship, has become affected to some degree by the spirit of the age in which we live. So those insulated coffee mugs find their way into our worship. I think that's probably a mistake. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's a mistake. I can certainly tell you with some confidence that if you go back 15 or 20 years, it would have been completely un unheard of. And in churches... Um, that took worship as serious, seriously as we do would have been frowned upon and with some justification. So that's one area, I think, in which we've capitulated to the spirit of the casualness of our age. There's another aspect of our age, I think, which is worth mentioning. It has to do with our children. Uh, since 
well, at least since Rousseau and probably uh, other streams of the um, uh, philosophical cesspool that um, we're now all sort of swimming in out there, um, it has been taken for granted that children are either the kind of pure, innocent ones who have not been corrupted by anything wrong, or they are immovable in the sense that you know there's nothing that we can do to train them there's nothing that we can do if they if if they start to go off the rails we just shrug our shoulders and well that's just the way it goes i remember noticing this for the first time when we were preparing for the birth of our first child ben over 20 years ago now and uh, the antenatal classes we went to which were really very helpful in lots of ways but one thing that wasn't helpful was when uh, some of the people who are in the class started talking ominously about what they called the terrible twos and I'd never heard this phrase before never having been a father the terrible twos was a reference to the period of life once a child gets to being about a toddler age I guess where basically they become terrible terribly behaved and here's the thing there's nothing we can do about it the assumption out there in the world is that either kids are pure of heart, innocent of heart, and there's nothing we need to do, or to the extent that they go sideways or start behaving badly, there's nothing that we can do about it. I want to suggest that that's profoundly mistaken. Just think how strongly and how sharply that stands against what scripture teaches about how we should raise our kids. Think of Ephesians 6, or you know, I don't know, the whole of the book of Proverbs, just to take a couple of examples about the emphasis on training our children to walk in the ways of the Lord. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to our worship, is it possible that there's a temptation to capitulate to the spirit of the age there as well? I'm not talking about you know six-month-olds not being able to sit still. Obviously, we realize that a, a, a young baby is not able to sit still. But what do we do with our children when they get to you know, two or three or certainly five or six or older? Do we not expect them to be able to participate in worship in the kind of way that reflects what worship is how else are they going to develop the reverence for the lord that we want them to develop worship works not just from the inside out but from the outside in you see if you want to train your children and i know you do want to train your children to honor the lord as holy and to love the lord as a father who welcomes us to his table to hear the lord as our teacher who instructs us and commands us to go out and fight for him if you want to your children to know the liberty that comes from being set free from having the verdict of not guilty declared in the lord's courtroom then worship is the place where we teach our kids to experience that and i want to suggest we should be teaching them to experience it by training them to participate in it in the way that we participate in it it is perfectly possible for a four or five-year-old, and certainly for eight, nine, ten-year-old, to sit still, stand, kneel, uh, pay attention, uh, join in responses, sing, raise his or her hands, and so on. And you know this, because you've all seen children do this. I want to encourage us all to have a renewed effort in this direction. Let me give a couple of specific pointers. If you have children who are old enough to sit at a meal table on their best days they're old enough to sit at in front of the tv and watch cartoons for half an hour they're old enough to sit still in worship if they're trained to do so and the training 
happens partly in church and it may be necessary to do it at home. I can remember when we had young kids and we started to realize, you know, unless we did something about the wriggles that we would get, um, we weren't going to be able to expect them to sit still and pay attention and participate in and enjoy worship. Uh, and so we actually practiced at home. We'd practice on the sofa during family worship, stand, sit, kneel, join in the prayers and so on. We didn't do it that many times. It wasn't necessary to do it that many times. And kids get the hang of it and kids start to enjoy it. And then the kids start to get shaped by what lies behind it. And isn't that just what we want? We want our children to love uh, living God, to be in awe of his holiness, to hear his instruction, to delight in the forgiveness of sins that is ours in him and to be ready to fight and to stand for him in a hostile world. Our children will learn all of this in worship. And if you have a kid who's old enough to sit still for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes in front of the TV uh, watching cartoons, you've got a kid who's old enough to sit for that length of time doing the most important thing they'll ever do, provided you train them to do it. So I want to encourage you, let's set our standards high, shall we? Let's not capitulate to the spirit of the age. I know it's hard. I've had kids, I've had toddlers, I've had screaming two-year-olds. Occasionally, there'll be times when, you know, you've got a screaming two-year-old. Well, look, if this two-year-old is screaming and needs to be disciplined, by all means, please take, take the two-year-old out and deal with the two-year-old and then bring them back in. This is how you discipline your kids, right? It's not that the discipline is an alternative to obedience. The discipline is how we train our children to obey to obey what's good for them, what will enrich them, what will bless them. Of course, sometimes you've got kids who are younger than that. And we do have a nursing room for mums who need to uh, feed or um, just calm down the very, very tiny ones. You know, I'm talking about, you know, one-year-olds and six-month-olds and so on and so forth. But uh, let's remember that even there, we don't want that to become the kind of place we go to chat. That's the place you go temporarily with a child who needs to be fed or needs to be calmed down so that they can be brought back into worship. Again, that's not, um, if there's a little bit of a whimper here and there, that's fine in worship. But once your child has been crying for 30 seconds or so, it's probably got to the point where you can deal with it better by taking them out. Do you, as parents, I know you've got these instincts, but let me just say out loud what probably most of you are thinking, if you're thinking about it self-consciously. Uh, once a kid has been making a noise for 30 seconds or so if it's a loud noise it's probably time to either take them out and let them calm down because they're tiny or it's time to take them out for some discipline if they're a little older and know better then you can bring them back in and let's train our children to have this expectation of participating with full engagement and clarity of mind in what we're doing in worship i can promise you it will shape your children's hearts i'll tell you a story um the church i pastored in in london uh, we were a very small church 32 people when we started off and we had a family who arrived uh, after we'd been going for not many months uh, who had uh, three young boys and the youngest was in a stroller and then the older two one was sitting on the ground the other one was uh running around the the room in which we were meeting tearing the place up during worship at one point i think he might even have run behind me as I was leading worship. And that was the day I thought, okay, uh, this is the moment our having the kids in church and all worshipping together policy fails. But of course it wasn't. <laughs> what it was was the day when I and one of the other elders went to the mum and the dad and 
said, hey, listen, um, uh, let's try and give you a little bit of help in, in working out how best to train your kids and to encourage them to participate in worship, which is what they wanted. They wanted to come to a church where their children could be a part of what was going on. And they were looking around at other kids who weren't tearing the place up and thinking, well, how do we get there? And so we gave them some help about that. I tell you, six weeks later, six weeks later, that kid who'd been running around the building, he's like five years old, pointed at one of the other young boys in the church and said, and I quote, I'm going to be good in church from now on because I want to be like him. And he pointed at one of the other lads who's about his age, maybe a year older, who had learned to embrace and enjoy and participate in worship. So no distracting activities for the kids. Let's think again about those insulated flasks of coffee and all the other things that we might do that evince a kind of casualness in our worship. And let's bring ourselves back to this as the most important moment of the week. One final thing I want to share with you. How are we doing for time? 20 minutes. Let me share this with you because um, this serves to illustrate the point that this issue of how we comport ourselves, how we behave in worship has always been something that churches and pastors have needed to address. It's always been a challenge. It's always been something that's worth addressing. I'm going to read you something from uh, George Herbert's book, The Priest to the Temple. George Herbert was an English Anglican clergyman at the start of the 17th century. He was actually a very fine scholar who died tragically young after serving just a a few years uh, as a pastor of a very small parish in England. He wrote this pastor's handbook in which he gave advice to the, the parson, he called him, another word for a pastor, uh, to other parsons, other pastors, about how they should shepherd their flocks. And at one point, he talks about how a pastor should encourage his congregation to engage in worship and prayer and so on. Let me read a, just a paragraph or two from this, then I'll be done. Besides his example... Herbert writes, so the pastor is setting an example of how to pray and how to worship God. He having often instructed his people how to carry themselves in divine service, exacts of them all possible reverence, by no means enduring either talking or sleeping or gazing or leaning or half kneeling or any other undutiful behavior in them, but causing them when they sit or stand or kneel to do all in a straight and steady posture as attending to what is done in the church. Well, there's a healthy start, right? (laughs) Imagine all these people in 17th century England kind of coming in from the fields and sort of scratching their heads and just sort of shifting around like this. And Herbert's like, no, a straight and steady posture. He continues. And everyone man and child, there we are, all the little ones as well, answering aloud both amen and all other answers. There we are. He's got them training their kids. Kids don't automatically do this all the time. You might have to train them. You might have to teach them. That's what Herbert would have them done. Which answers are not to be done in a huddling or slubbering fashion. That's interesting. It's an old English uh, terminology. I guess what he has in mind is you don't want the kids, especially, to be sort of be sprawled about on the pews and just sort of yawning their way through amens and so on and so forth. But you want them to be standing, sitting, kneeling with dignity and reverence for the God whom we're meeting. 
not gaping or scratching the head or spitting even in the midst of their answer. I don't think that's something we've had to deal with. Maybe Herbert did, I don't know. But gently and pausably, here's an interesting point he makes, quote, thinking what they say so that while they answer, as it was in the beginning, is now and shall be forever, that's an old Anglican liturgical formula, they meditate as they speak that God has ever been his people, have ever had his people that have glorified him as well as now, and that he shall have so forever. In other words, reflecting on the meaning of the words. Herbert applies this uh, principle, or draws this principle rather, from Romans 12, the, poor, the Apostle Paul's teaching about our reasonable service, uh, thinking and being aware of what it is that we're saying and, and how we're worshipping God. And he has a final comment about the pastor not being afraid to challenge people, even when it's somewhat uncomfortable to do so. If there be any of the gentry or nobility of the parish who sometimes make it a piece of state not to come in at the beginning of service with their poor neighbours, but at mid-prayers, both to their own loss and of theirs who gaze upon them when they come in and neglect the present service of God, he by no means suffers it. But after diverse gentle admonitions, if they persevere, he causes them to be presented. Oh my goodness, what's going on here? He's anticipating a situation where you've got the rich family in the parish, who probably pay two thirds of his salary, who rock up to worship late and stride in in all their uh, magnificent finery, not wanting to mix with the ordinary folk who arrive on time, but arriving half an hour late just so they can be seen by all the people in their uh, dominions of the local uh, village or whatever. And he's like, no, we're not tolerating that. Mercifully, I don't think that's something we have to deal with here at All Saints, not only because we don't have the English class system at work, but because if anybody arrived late, they wouldn't find any space. But it's interesting, um, he would have them presented, that is, formally presented to the church wardens who are responsible for disciplinary matters in the church. But what if the church wardens are a bit intimidated by these people? Well, uh, if the poor church wardens be affrighted with their greatness, I love this old English, notwithstanding his instruction that they ought not to be so, but even to let the world sink so they do their duty, he presents them himself, only protesting to them that not any ill will draws him to it, but the debt and obligation of his calling being to obey God rather than men. I think it's a fascinating glimpse into the life of a 17th century clergyman who loves his congregants so much that he's not going to be intimidated by them, even when they're the people who pay his salary, stipend is the technical term, uh, even when uh, there's a danger they might think he's getting on their case. No, he's not getting on their case. He has to obey God rather than men. He has to have in mind what's really good for them rather than what's comfortable for them. And therefore, he has to charge them to approach divine worship in a way that recognizes the infinite dignity of the God to whom we come when we worship him. Okay, I think that's probably enough from me. Uh, it may have prompted some questions for you, some practical questions perhaps. So please don't hesitate as ever to give me a call, get in touch if you'd like to talk about anything. But for now, the Lord bless you and see you soon.